0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Zach Lipton. Zach is an assistant professor in the Tepper School of Business and an affiliate faculty in the Machine Learning Department and Heinz School of Public Policy at CMU. Zach, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having me. Let's get started by having you share a little bit about your background. How did you end up in you know this intersection of business, machine learning, public policy, uh, lots of different areas?
1: Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not sure completely. Um, <laughs> but I can't really, to be completely honest, I can't claim it was planned or anything. I think if anything, maybe it came from, um sort of just doing what I wanted to do at every given point and and, and not following a very specific path uh, that was laid out. And as a result, uh, wound up maybe someplace different than, you know, the standard thing. You
0: recently transitioned uh, into your professorship at, at
1: CMU from your PhD. What was that in? So I did my PhD in computer science. Um, I kind of had a circuitous path I had a circuitous path to PhD and out of PhD, but um, I, I did my undergraduate in math and economics at Columbia. That was a long time ago, and I was a musician sort of before, during, and after, and that was my, that was my main thing. I was playing the saxophone, and I wanted to, um, I don't know, it would be a hustling jazz musician, um, which is a hard life, I think, even if you're, even if you're the very best and luckiest, but certainly if you're not the luckiest. So I was doing that for a long time. After I think I was happiest playing music when I was in an undergrad, and there was this kind of amazing balance about being uh, at Columbia and taking my having the academic side of my life be a little bit more on the on the technical side, which felt felt more natural for me at least at least within an academic environment. Like I enjoyed like jazz music is sort of a folk music, and and, and there's something very organic about learning that music as an oral tradition and learning it by spending your nights out until 4am, playing it with people who, who speak that music or who, who play that music kind of natively. Um, and there was something that I never quite loved about taking classes in jazz music, like in a, in a university or conservatory setting, it always felt a little bit artificial. I think maybe other, you know, other art forms might be more amenable to that. And so, uh, I guess after spending a certain amount of time playing music, being outside, um, I had some like personal setbacks. So I was uh, like hemorrhaging money and living in the Lower East Side. And uh, uh, the only way I was able to live in the Lower East Side is I was in a rent controlled apartment. And usually that means that unfortunately, New York was kind of neglected by the landlords. And so it was like a moldy apartment. There's people vomiting on your sidewalk and all that. And then I went out and visited a friend who's actually a musician who was doing a PhD in music composition. So he he was a jazz musician, but he had he was an amazing pianist and has uh, you know the the kind of rounded chops that he could also make it in a composition program. He came out and started a graduate program at UC Santa Cruz. Um, so I came out and visited him, and I didn't want to go to grad school for music, but that experience of being out there and like after just kind of being in this sort of falling apart type state in New York city in this rundown apartment and feeling unhealthy and everything. Then I was out in Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz, like the sun is shining. It's the most beautiful <laughs> place in the world. Santa the 90 Cruz is year great. olds, the 90 year olds look 30 years old. <laughs> um, and then they you know, this group of composers would get together every week and they had these listening sessions. And it was almost like a reading group, you know, like they would like it, it was very different than maybe like my experience in music, which is a being a social music was hard to have like a kind of critical intellectual discourse about it on the level because you sort of were it was very personal to people and you were trying to get gigs working with people. and I that that I felt like there was like this missing part of my life that you know, it's like very, academic slash New York thing in me that just wants to uh, like Have very like candid arguments with people about things and I I was I was in Santa Cruz and it was just beautiful and everything was amazing and these composers would get together once a week and Someone would curate and they play a bunch of music and then people would just scream at each other about it and like really, you know Not not in an ad hominem way, but just really, you know, express really really strong kind of critical opinions about it And, and there was something about this this environment that made me think you know like that oh that's it like it wasn't that I want to go to grad school for music but I was like oh I'm gonna move to California I'm gonna do a PhD I'm gonna get into that kind of environment where I feel like I have that kind of intellectual life mm-hmm. and so I went back home and I like uh got my landlord degree to let me break my lease early um I asked my parents if I could steal our old like 2004 Toyota Corolla I uh took the sign up take the GREs And then I was like, I'm going to go do a PhD. And I hadn't even decided like what the PhD was going to be in. Mm. (laughs) So then like the next step was like, well, what am I going to do? And actually came together this whole like really just kind of like ridiculous, you know, like unqualified plan to do PhD came together extremely fast, like two to three weeks. It was just kind of all set up. Um, It just kind of I don't know why I I didn't even know what machine learning really was. But I knew I wanted to do PhD. And I, I went I had a good friend who was sort of had been a you know, a bit of a mentor for me who was a a biophysics professor. And I used to, I built him, a—I taught myself to program a little bit and I built him a website. And so we would hang out and play chess sometimes and drink coffee. And um, he used to invite me to the reading group. So I had a little bit of a sense of what academic life was like, even though I I don't really know biology or physics. Um, And he was just always, for some reason, he took an interest in me and we were, we were close. And so I talked to him, I was like, you know, maybe I should do PhD in biology. And he's like, you know, that's not fun. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, top, it's, like, it's heavy, it like that's a top heavy. We basically was like, that's, you know, it, it's a great job and it's an amazing field if you're on top. But he's like, you, you know, it's going to take you six years to figure out how to be a useful lab tech before you can even start doing anything creative. And by that time, you're going to be, you know, you know, on your way to 40 years old. Like, that's that's not the route. Um, and we thought about some more. I was like, what well, do I taught You know, um, I've taken one only one or two undergraduate computer science classes but somehow that felt like the right thing mm-hmm. like there was something, something just like really I think I think a lot of people have it the first time you learn computer science you learn about algorithms and you suddenly start learning how to think about how to start formalizing things you see in the real world how would you model that computationally and then you start thinking about things like the structure in real world problems that makes them amenable to efficient algorithms something about that like kind of clicked with me when I was young so even if I hadn't sort of followed up on it, just having these like two or three undergraduate computer science classes made this impression on me. And I, I knew how to program just enough to um, cause trouble. And so I thought about it. I was like, Well, you know, that's that's the thing I can maybe sort of run with, you know, but that was, you know, it was a very thin, thin basis to hang my hat on. But fortunately, um fortunately, when I applied to PhD, there were some people who were willing to take a chance on me. And, and one of them was uh, UC San Diego, which is a Absolutely fantastic school that, you know, everyone in the world should apply to if you're interested in uh, if you're interested in computer science or surfing or beautiful weather, just building a new life.
0: Sounds like you pattern match Santa Cruz pretty well, except for maybe, uh, I don't know, eight degrees warmer on average or something.
1: Yeah, it's a bit warmer. You know, they both, I think, have the uh, year round moderate weather thing. Right. Kind of happened. They both have the surfing. I think Santa Cruz is a bit hippier. San, you know, San Diego has multiple sides. Like you've got the the La Jolla kind of stuffy Mitch Romney kind of side, and then you've got the uh, you got a lot of Navy presence there, so that that's a big player in San Diego. Um, but yeah, you've got that that beautiful year round weather, and, and that attracts something cool. Mm-hmm. Great food, also. And so did you just
0: jump right in, take some courses, find your way to machine learning? Or how, what was that initial connection to the, the world of
1: ML? Well, ML was just the, the thing from the start. Like that was my I didn't know any ML. Like literally, if you told me to like write out, you know, explain to you on the whiteboard, like a classic algorithm, like logistic regression or something, I, w- I would not have known. Uh, I, w- I would not have been able to do it or, you know, explain gradient descent like I hadn't I hadn't ever implemented a machine learning algorithm, but what I knew was that um, I spent one year in San Francisco 2012. So like when I made this plan, you know, there's one problem with the whole grad school pipeline, which is that it's a great pipeline or, you know, maybe, maybe people have some fault with it or something, but overall, like it works well if you're already in the system. So, like, if you're an undergrad and then you want, you, you know, you want to go to master's, you're like, well, you know, I'm a junior now. And I got to start thinking about that. And, and, and you do it and you're not, like, off the path while you're making that plan, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the trick is, is if you're doing something completely different, you know, if you're like, yo, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm playing a saxophone at three in the morning uh, for 40 bucks in um, some weird dive that's going to close down in a couple months and I want to go do a Ph.D., then it's like you're you're out of the system like what are you gonna so 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 this was like spring 2000 like end of spring 2012 is what you need that's that's like your last moment to make a move like a serious like hard hard turn even if you play everything right to like get in the phd for fall 2013 mm-hmm. right so you, you have to kind of not just like have this thing come together but you then have to somehow stick with it despite not being like in that rhythm for some period of time. So, so, so my move was basically, I knew that if I stayed in New York, I would just keep doing what I was doing. So my move was to like break my lease, sign up for the GREs, get that part out of the way. Cause that was the part that I knew about and then move to California. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll basically go to San Francisco and maybe find a way to be, uh, be a lemming for a startup or something until, um, you know, while, while I'm putting that together, but at least I wouldn't be like, in New York, still hanging out till five in the morning, like trying to hustle for gigs because I'd be, I'd be out of, you know, and, and it just also felt natural, like change, change your life, change your location, like to wake up every morning in a new place. So I moved to San. Francisco. Actually, I did everything weird, you know. It was a really wild time. Like I moved, I lived in one of these, uh, like totally could not possibly have been legal. They call them like hacker hostels or something. Oh yeah. Like I, I saw some. <laughs> I saw. I, I have this like problem, which is maybe part of why I have wound up in all kinds of weird situations, but if you can cast like a situation as a choice to have an adventure or not have an adventure, and that's like a valid lens on the situation, then I'll choose the adventure. (laughs) And so, and so I read in, you know, I was thinking like San Francisco, like, you know, whatever, Silicon Valley, whatever, you know, it didn't, it was still a little more romantic at the time. I think in 2012, it wasn't quite as like evil empire as it is now, but it was Mm -hmm. already pretty expensive. And, uh, there was these articles in New York times about these weird hacker hostels where like people would rent them through Airbnb for like a month at a time. And they were like packed in. And so I went out and I lived like literally in a bunk bed with, uh, six people for a month until, um, trying to make it big in Silicon Valley. And it, <laughs> Yeah. Just trying, to uh, yeah, I don't know what it was. Just just found, find out what it was. Like I didn't know anyone out there. So like, at least I'll meet some, and it was all like Germans met like a bunch of, Germans who were hanging out for a minute yeah they love their hostels yes I moved to California biked the California coast and then uh, set up in San Francisco and lived in this weird Airbnb for a minute and then I moved out to Oakland and that was great I actually ended up playing a lot of jazz again when I was in Oakland and getting to know that community Um, And worked with a startup and then uh, you know spent a significant portion of my time then um, applying a PhD and I got lucky that someone took a chance on me. Nice, nice. And so you applied to ML programs. You know, uh, not to be all CMU chauvinist or something, but uh, I think CMU is unusual in having an ML program, and was in the past was exceedingly unusual in having like a tr- like an ML department. Like, so I applied. I applied to computer science, and you know, you check off maybe some interest areas or something, but it's not like a a separate program you apply to computer science. I think now things have gotten weird enough that you look at a, a typical school has a has a, a typical university as a school of engineering within a department of computer science and within that some subgroup of people some working group that works on machine learning not as like a formal distinction um, although maybe there's some kind of committees or they band together for making hiring decisions or something but um you know, that's how it works. CMU is very unusual because CMU has a school of computer science and within it, uh, department of machine learning, a department of robotics, the department of uh, natural language, you know, it's called language technologies Institute, um, department of human computer action and stuff like that. So, you know, at the time of applying most of the places you apply, you just apply to CS, um, yeah. and maybe list your interest. I think now things are getting weird because I think more places are copying the CMU model as, uh, places try to keep up with the band, especially for like, courses in in AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other thing that's happening is just a lot of schools get, I've heard from colleagues who are um, professors elsewhere that, you know, at at a lot of CS departments, you'll get, maybe CS will be like six faculty out of 50 or 40 or something, but maybe 50, 60% of the applications for grad school, for PhD, are people saying they want to do machine learning, right? So that creates a whole other dynamic where maybe they end up Treating it, even if it's not formally a separate application, they have to throttle it a little bit because they're thinking, well, who are these people going to work with, right? Right, right. And the alternatives, you accept them all, you know, and then, and then you know, the half of them get the advisor they want, and the other half end up doing compilers or something.
0: <laughs> Let's maybe talk a little bit about your your broad research interests nowadays. What are you focusing on?
1: Well, you know, I think the lens. I mean, okay, there's a few a few kind of lenses that that I have in research, right? There's um, you know, a lot of people are more applied. A lot of people are more like theoretical or core algorithms. And I kind of straddle that line a little bit. And on the applied side, my, my biggest interest has been since before I started PhD and, um, has continued to be throughout. And as a young faculty member has been, uh, working in machine learning for healthcare. So, so that's kind of, you know, if I had to step back and think about not, you know, papers in terms of like their aesthetic beauty or something, but in terms of like, if I could, you know, build something big, like what would the grand vision be? It would be, I, I would like to have a positive impact in healthcare, and I think there are opportunities to do it. Um, but at the same time, working on problems in healthcare, I, I think it's also a great application, not just because uh, it's, you know, uh, much better for your soul than working on advertisements, but also because I think it just sort of puts you in touch with what's wrong, right? Because you you basically, you just can't afford, like it's too important and the stakes are too high that if you're going to, if you're going to go out there and say, this is how we should do decision making or something, or, you know, we could, you know, all these people, there's these sensational headlines, your next doctor might be an AI and it's such absolute crap, right? But the reason why is because it really, you know, if you really think deeply about these things that puts you in touch with like... The discrepancy between the tools that we uh, have mastered and that we're building and in the actual real world problems we're claiming to 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 make some impact on. Right. So the the one hammer we have that everybody, uh, you know, is throwing all over the place wherever you can stick it in is called supervised learning. I'm sure you've talked about, you know, machine learning. I guess, sure. you, you know, you've run 9000 podcasts already. And um, <laughs> everyone who was talking about an actual working system probably was talking about supervised learning. Right. There, there, there are limited exceptions or maybe someone just saying with banded algorithms on advertisements. But for the most part, you know, supervised learning is basically based on this idea that you're going to get data that comes in. Right. And it's going to consist of inputs and corresponding outputs. And you're going to um, try to predict the outputs based on the inputs. And uh, fortunately, you know, what makes it supervised is that you, for the purposes of training, are going to have this large data set for which the outputs are known. So it's like someone's uh, standing over your shoulder and telling you what the right answer is. And now the big, big assumption is that the, the data that you're then going to see in the, in the real world, you, your training data was representative of it. Right. So, like, basically, the, the historical data and the future data are assumed to be what we call iid which means they're like independently sampled from the same exact distribution yeah and and that's just a a a wild assumption right when you then think like okay wait a minute so so what can we do it's like we can infer a likely output given an input um assuming that the future is in every like statistical way Sort of, you know, that the, the historical data is perfectly representative of the future in every, you know, important statistical way. And, and that's just something that completely breaks down when you look at a lot of real world problems. Right. So uh, one thing that happens is that just, well, the, the historical data is not representative. So so this is a question that, you know, I think uh, formally we talk about it in terms of uh, what we call distribution shift. And distribution shift could be kind of benign or not benign, but um, could just be kind of organic in the sense that it could be that, hey, hey, you know, Wednesday is different from Tuesday because it's because it's different from Tuesday. Right. So uh, if you're classifying news articles or saying what well, people are, you know, different different stories are trending uh, more, you know, if you're classifying by topic or something, there's more sports stories, you know, today uh, because Wimbledon is happening or something or you know, the the Women's World Cup and uh, maybe there will be less uh, one week from now. Who knows? So that that's one way that things change. But then the, there, there's more insidious ways that things change, which is um, the other key thing is that we often, you know, the, the machine learning problem, the formal statement is all about making predictions. But we're often not really concerned with making predictions. We're concerned with um, taking actions, right? It's all about driving decisions. If you're a company, you're talking about automation and machine learning is, coming up is this multi-billion dollar concern, largely because of the hope that, you know, w- what makes technology that valuable? It's, it's something that you can do at scale. It's not because it's just uh, people are doing offline data analysis or, you know, trying to o- understand their customers qualitatively because they're trying to drive decisions. Yeah. And once you start making decisions, now suddenly you're impacting the world and very often that very same environment that generates your future data. And we just don't have great tools for understanding these kind of feedback loops, right? Once you once you take the data, extract information from it and then use it to change the way that you make decisions in a way that, you know, influences the world, everything kind of falls apart. And so I've done a lot of work recently um, trying to look at, well, under what assumptions can you make models, um, one that are sort of guaranteed to be robust against certain kinds of distribution shift to short of that, you know, at least under what conditions, you uh, what tools can you use to try to detect as efficiently as possible, as quickly as possible when somehow your environment has changed? Um, and beyond that, to try to sort of gain some qualitative insight into is that is that shift uh, pathological or not? Is it something that you expect to, to break your model or, or or destroy the validity of your predictions? You know, think about a medical setting, right? Like you're, you're trying to you're trying to You know, you want to have the the doctor AI, your next doctor is going to be an AI. It's like presumably they have to be able to make treatment decisions, not just, uh, you know, uh, predict what would have happened if a different doctor, you know, if if the doctor who would have treated you anyway uh, had done their thing. So that's that's a bit of a
0: nuance. How does that correspond to the distribution shift and the feedback loops that you were talking about? Because I think the fundamental premise of as to your point most everything we're doing here, which is supervised learning is, you know, we're going to collect this data that represents the sage wisdom of all the best doctors and train our models on it. And so then if, you know, our models making the, the decisions, you know, that are close to what our you know, the doctor that would have otherwise done them and does a good job at making those decisions and everything is good and rosy.
1: Right. The problem is that, well, there's a number of big problems. but one is <laughs> you know what one is that the act you know the world is changing naturally, right? And the actual doctor is has some understanding of of the biology of disease and and is somewhat adaptable in this way, right? Like when we look at the ways that machine learning models break because you you moved a few pixels in an image, um that kind of stuff doesn't fool a human. So the humans are um, pretty robust. And I think actually this is a, and this is something that um, my friend Jacob Steinhardt and I talked about in um, in a paper about some kind of misleading trends or some problematic trends in scholarship. Is that there's this tendency in papers to to sort of make a kind of hyperbolic claim that isn't substantiated by by, by the research. And one of the classic ways this happens is people talk about human level performance, right? So the human level of performance it's actually not it's not quite the right compare. If you're going to talk about um, Sort of human capacity. The human capacity isn't just for um, doing uh, doing well in this very very constrained sort of like artificial environment that only exists when you truly have a a randomized train test split. Um, the human dermatologist is going to continue to be a good dermatologist, even if uh, the, the light contrast uh, slightly changes on the images that they're looking at. Right. Or even if uh, the skin tone of the patients uh, is different than it was in the training set mm-hmm. problems where the, the machine learning potentially is going to fall apart in a catastrophic way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, right, you know, so, so there's, there's an issue even with matching performance, because like matching performance you know, when we talk about performance, we're talking about accuracy, often it's like, well, accuracy is itself a statistic, right? Accuracy is only true, it's only valid assuming a certain distribution of data. And if that's something that could change, like if, if you know the 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 patient, something something different happens, you know, the the patients start coming in with a different distribution of illnesses, um, some disease starts becoming, you know, that there's an epidemic, it's not quite, you know, not every patient, um, you know, you have to make adjustments to um what 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 illnesses are patients likely to have given their symptoms, things like that. Yeah. Um, the other side is that ultimately, what you'd like to do is you'd like to not. Um, the dream of machine learning is in, in healthcare. Isn't that we're going to somehow um, replace a bunch of doctors, um, and in the process keep healthcare like slightly worse but almost as good. Right. Like that's sort of what you're talking about when you're like, if you can predict what when you talk about this imitation type learning thing. So so a bigger dream would be that you would actually be able to assist the decision making process. And so you'd be able to like like ultimately the thing that gets most people excited isn't just say, hey, we're going to automate doctors, um, which, you know, already maybe misses the point about just how much of the work is involved is is not, um, you know, taking the, the data that's already there and like, trying to predict the doctor's decision, but it was actually meeting with the patient and determining which test to run in the first place, you know, which resulted in the data, which actually was already all the work um, that, that the machine learning is not doing for you. So, you know, that's another way that it's misleading. You know, if we, we insert the machine learning at the end, we think we're doing what the doctor does, but it's like, well, what about those test results? Where did they can come from? Well, because someone who ordered those tests. So what, you know, Um, so then we also have to predict which test to order and then given the test, we have to predict which disease given the disease we have to predict, you know, also, uh, which treatment they're going to recommend. And so, you know, if you start, if you actually do a kind of fair analysis that puts together all the compounded errors that pop up and that account for a world that's constantly changing, things get messy. But then even on top of that, it's like our goal isn't to just freeze medicine at this point in time get rid of all the doctors, and then just like put into place a machine learning algorithm that is based on what medicine looks like in 2018. What we'd like to do is to be able to understand um, disease processes better and be able to understand, be able to analyze uh, data using, say, for example, models that don't just make predictions but estimate treatment effects. So that's uh, something we call causal inference. And ultimately, right, you'd like to be able to say, hey, if I intervene and do something different than what the doctor normally would do, What do I expect the outcome would be Um, or which patients should I assign which drugs? Can I can I you know, can we make a dent in personalized medicine to do that? We're not just trying to make predictions about what people would have otherwise done. We're trying to figure out what are better things that we could do. And that requires uh, causal inference and causal inference actually now gives you gives you a whole other lens on the ways that humans and computers potentially um, need to combine what they're good at. Because causal inference is not something that you in general can just do Um, given offline data and no prior information. Causal inference actually requires uh, certain inductive assumptions, certain assumptions about uh, the causal graph or the mechanism that relates to data, or which things uh, listen to which things. You know, for example, like the, you know, smoking causes cancer potentially, but cancer probably doesn't cause smoking. Um, That'd be like a classic toy, you know, textbook example. but building in certain certain kind of advanced knowledge together with um, offline data, you know, then we're able to, to, to potentially identify a causal effect even without, you know, running experiments in the wild. But we have to, um, you know, I think ultimately, you know, work, working on a task like medicine really exposes and, and thinking about what it would take to actually do something that you could actually run in the wild exposes you, you know, makes you think about those things in a way that I think you know, maybe you should think about it if you're doing recommender systems. But the truth is that even if you don't think about it, um, there's going to be a large company that's willing to throw it out in the world and see if they make more money or lose money. And if they make money is kind of going to roll with it, even if it's kind of doing the wrong thing. Right. So we do that a lot with recommender systems where it's like, what is the real task we're trying to solve? I don't know, curate interesting content. Um, but what do we actually do? It's like we predict clicks because that's the data we capture. So, right. and that's another way we that the contract breaks. Right? I've talked about the way contract breaks because the distribution changes because we um, actually interfere in the world, and that kind of messes with um, all the future data we see is now from a different world, the world in which you know customers are interacting with um, this this system that that changes everything. But another way that the contract breaks is we're just predicting the wrong thing in the first place because the thing we really care about is something where we don't we don't capture a structured data, right? If you think about that, like with a uh, a lot of these issues potentially that that make people worried and concerned about problems uh, regarding, say, for example, racial or gender bias in in automated systems. Another area that I spend a lot of time thinking about and working on. You know, one one of the the clear failure mechanisms is the data that you capture that you model is the thing that's convenient, not the not the the, the true the true data. It's not the only way that things can fail, but that's one of them. And so you can imagine that you know you predict who's going, who to hire based on um, who the people hired in the past. But you know that that's what you measure is is who got hired in the past or or who how are they rated by the interviewers in the past. What you don't capture necessarily is the thing you actually care about, which is you know, how strong a candidate are they, which is a more abstract concept. So we, we end up relying on this thing that we have data for, which is not the same thing. And, you know, what? what is what is that consequence of, of sort of optimizing the wrong thing? And, you know, in the case of like YouTube recently, they had a scandal where the, the consequence was sort of curating pedophilia um, or curating naked baby videos for people with this, you know, so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a especially dark or scary uh, consequence. But, you know, this is something that we we have to think about is, is, is when the contract breaks, um, you know, and, and I think by, you know, that sort of forces us to sort of go beyond just uh, the narrow confines of doing and evaluating supervised learning models where mostly the technical content consists of people um you know, just sort of the get, squeezing out incremental uh, predictive performance improvements, assuming the task is the right task and sort of forces us to step back and think about either a more challenging or fundamental task like estimating causal effects or thinking about the consequences of some of these systems, like, you know, using tools of say economic modeling. And, and that's one thing that's cool about sitting in the business school and having uh, social scientists and economists as colleagues.
0: So, well, talk to me about some of the economic modeling uh, tools and applications uh, of those tools in the space. What are some examples of how that plays out in uh, healthcare and other areas?
1: I-, I think the area where I personally am encountering economics the most, like I-, I came, I got hired by, you know, kind of strangely early in PhD. I got approached by the the Tepper School, um, who was make, looking to make, um, you know, kind of. Uh, Move move in a, a data science direct. I think I was you know I was a little bit of an experiment, um, and uh, for for a little while I was a bit separated. I think um, I wasn't like reading many economics papers or something. I, I was wrapping up you know my kind of core like ICML NeurIPS type um, work, and and actually what two things that me recently have put me in touch with them is one, you know uh, starting to think a lot more about causality. You take a step back and say, well who's who's doing empirical causal effect modeling in, in the world broadly, and it's largely social scientists and, you know, like applied applied uh, economists and econometricians, right? Like this is their bread and butter is, mm-hmm. um, there was some shock to this. Did, did, is it true that increasing the minimum wage uh, um, decreases employment, or is that not true, right? And then you have these various ways of trying to draw these inferences from, from um, you know, shocks to the system and the natural world or, you know, various, you know, they're, they, you know they have a handful of tools that, that they're kind of tried and true, like instrumental variable analysis, regression discontinuity, um, difference in difference. Some of these tools, you know, rely on some very strong assumptions. And I think can sometimes, you know, if those assumptions are violated, it can lead to some wrong conclusions. But that, that's one way that I've kind of started crossing over. And I think, you know, a lot of those tools are important because if you look at the work modeling, you know, when you look at the effect of this technology in the real world and you, you want to start saying, well, what is the impact of. Um, you know, especially when you have these uh, fuzzy systems, right, like uh, risk scoring systems that have been driving policing decisions that are then influencing these outcomes. And it's very hard, you know, from the machine learning standpoint if you there's a big pile of papers that are just considering the classification aspect, right? I've got these people, they belong to this group, these people that belong to that group. These are the, these are the, their inputs. These are the, um, ground truth outputs. These are the predictions. Let me, let me do some, uh, kind of arithmetic on them. But what you're not seeing is that like, oh, this system is generating a, a prediction. This prediction is some kind of score. The score is an input to a human who's making a decision. And if you actually care about the downstream problem, which is how is, how is the introduction of this kind of system that is mining this information to make predictions, driving decisions, and influencing outcomes, then you start crossing over into a land where actually the people who have the experience doing this are the social scientists of actually um, looking at real-world data and trying to figure out, um, you know, what what are what are, what are these various effects? Um, and I think the other side actually if is— If I
0: could jump in there, that's a really interesting point because I think we often hear from— the kind of the vendor community that's providing tools that are enabling uh, these examples, these use cases that you're describing. That hey, you know, we're providing these tools to uh, to feed into a human decision process, as if. You know, that that somehow, you know, means that there's not going to be anything wrong with the system, like the overall system. And also that we don't need to further, like, study and understand that overall system with, you know, the impact of these new tools in it. And I think you're pointing to that, well, actually studying, you know, the impact of things like this is, you know, something that we've been doing for a while, but just in other domains. And these are techniques that we can apply to these systems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there's, there's there's a lot to say about that, right? On one hand, it's like, <laughs> I, I feel like the, 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 it's the easiest thing to say, which um, maybe is not as like intellectually profound, but like, I think as like a public service announcement needs to be out there is like, first of all, like, no, um, like, it's almost a bit Orwellian. It's like, first of all, no, it's not okay, just because there's an algorithm involved. But at the same time, it's also not just OK. Just, it's not OK just because there's a human involved, right? Right, right. Um, and there, there's, there's a lot of issues to sort through, but both in terms of how we analyze these systems, also in terms of, you know, I think one of the fundamental difficulties in the area is also figuring out, you know, what is what even what is our goal right? what is what is the right thing to do here? It's not always obvious. Um, I think there are some cases that to us are like very obvious that something is wrong you know, but it's not always obvious what is the right basis for making certain kinds of decisions, especially when there's certain kinds of like intrinsic, uh, trade-offs. So, okay. So, so, so there's questions about what's the right thing to do. The other thing, the other problem is it's also, okay. So the, the big meta point there, I think also is that, Hey, the, these aren't new problems that emerge just because we stuck an algorithm in there. Mm-hmm. Um, But they sort of get seen through a new light and get a new kind of attention. I think a lot of us in the machine learning community get stuck in this loop of of sort of trying to re like, you know, you you see a lot of people sort of talking about like AI ethics, which is great. It's great that people are trying to think about um, what is right um, and uh, think about these sort of like social impacts of applying these automated systems. But at the same time, a lot of people are doing it because there's a little bit of a bandwagoning effect going on, right? Where a lot of people are jumping into it, kind of completely oblivious of the fact that people have been mulling over, like what what are people, you know, what, what are people's rights and what um what what is like an ethical way to to engage in a lot of these systems even before machine learning was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually I had the benefit of. Uh, in early June, Cynthia Dwork, um, who's uh, an absolutely um, inspirational researcher, um, she's the inventor of differential privacy and one of the mm-hmm. pioneers in the more algorithmic fairness world, and Patricia Williams, who's a professor at Columbia Law, um, and uh, they, they put together this fantastic um, workshop at the Simons Institute for Theoretical Computer Science. Mm-hmm. And so they've been branching out into some um, more interdisciplinary type um, workshops. And this one was uh, about sort of uh, the, you know, race and data and, 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 and injustice and brought together people from I liked it because, you know, you normally have a spectrum that brings together people who are working in um, computer science, ML. And then, like, computer science ML adjacent. Like, you know, the, the, I feel like there's a sweet spot that, like, the, the spectrum for inter, interdisciplinarity runs from, like, uh, information school type technical social scientists to theoretical computer scientists. And that's the spectrum, which is great. That's still very broad. And it's a wonderful set of people that I consider to be, like, in large part, a lot of my, you know, my home, like the people who you, We'll meet if you go to like uh, Fat Star, right? The Fairness, Accountability, Transparency Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cool thing about this workshop is it brought together people like uh, Ruha Benjamin, who is in uh, Princeton and writes, um, you know, teaches in like African American Studies and has studied very clearly um, issues about race and technology in ways um, that transcend not just machine learning or this moment in time, but uh, more broadly, um, kind of history of um, ways that technology has been used as a as a tool that maybe exacerbates inequality. You had a a lot of people from public health and epidemiology who were there. You had a lot of people who had um, been involved on the ethical aspects from like the medical ethics community in uh, when when genetics was like the big hot technology. And there were all kinds of ways that genetics was being used in ways that um, had kind of maybe like ways that were expressed kind of dubiously in terms of um the you know ethical consequences like various things uh various sort of studies and population genetics that were sort of sort of like neo-eugenicist type uh work and um you know there there there's been a, a long history here that is outside machine learning i think is you know where we came from this and um being in touch with that and and you know, sometimes it's actually a surprisingly, you know, when, when you come at it from the perspective of like us, you know, people, a lot of people who are who are first thinking about these things and haven't like learned to um, are, are only first thinking about it. And, and, and in a relatively immature way and go to an area, um, people who've been looking at, say, criminal justice and um, thinking about it and in, in a very mature way over a very long period of time and have a really deep understanding of the kind of systemic problems in a way that goes beyond just kind of some trite formalism that maybe fails to capture the kind of like institutional level issues, And um, I think that, you know, there's a lot to learn there. And I think, you know, this is also, you know, one of the big things that came out of it for me from that workshop, that was, I think, um, a really kind of profound insight was that, we have a tendency in the technical community to try to reduce things to some kind of abstract problem. But there's a big danger that we can actually, I think a lot of us, even a lot of us sort of purporting to work on problems of algorithmic fairness, but through a technical lens, by not understanding the broader context and not understanding the kind of systemic problems, like it's not just a matter of making the false positive rates equal between two groups or something like this, but actually understanding, um, you know, st- stepping back of like, w- what does the data even mean, right? Or where was this data collected? Or what, you know, um, truly asking um, the kind of foundational questions about the broader system in which the kind of this formalism is embedded, we run the risk of of actually doing uh, what some people are calling fairwashing, which is that we could like take these fundamentally flawed systems where maybe the, the precise way that machine learning is being used there, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. And we could go in and say, oh, you know, I'm I'm into machine learning. I'm into social good. Let me uh, let me do some work at that area and come up with a little tweak on the You know, there's there's a danger of coming up with just a, a small tweak on some existing algorithm. Right. That sort of preserves precisely qualitatively what we're already doing, but gives somehow the impression that you've made it like fair. Right. I mean, that's
0: kind of reflective of a broader argument, I guess, that's happening in the ML research community at large, the the extent to which, you know, the, you know, these kind of revolutionary advances versus, you know, incremental, you know, with regard to publishing papers, like, you know, the, the we're, you know, a lot of the papers that we're seeing are kind of incremental application of some new training technique or something like that. And there is some commentary that, um, you know, we're seeing kind of this huge exponential growth in the number of papers that are published, but some are arguing that the field isn't advancing, you know, accordingly. And so this is this kind of fair washing argument, you know, on the one hand, you know, the, the fair washing element of it is different, but it's also somewhat reflective of kind of the broader dynamic that's happening in the research community. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the broader thing that it's kind of endemic is, um, I think there's a lot of trends in the community, um, largely due to the success of the field and the fact that it's grown in such a um, really, I don't know if it's unprecedented in the scoop of all fields, but it's unprecedented maybe in the scope of, of of AI, machine intelligence, that has sort of resulted in this weird situation where the the review system is buckling a little bit. The review system, the, the pool of reviewers has had to grow in a way that maybe changes the standards of who's a qualified reviewer. Um, a lot of people are in a uh, very volume driven. I, I think what, one of the things that happens is as the community grows so fast, Not that many people are getting mentorship from, you know, true masters in the field, but are really um, taking their cues from uh, machine learning subreddit or something and, um, you know, are looking for looking for a splashy um, or just, you know, trying to get papers in or get citations. So, So there's a lot of ways that the community maybe is struggling a little bit now in terms of quality control. Um, and I think that maybe is a natural thing that'll self-correct As you know, I think even this ICML was actually a, a step in the right direction. Then, you know, the other side is like the this specific trend that you're talking about here, which is maybe this particular thing that we um, talk about, about maybe uh, being a little bit abusive with uh, language, with mis- misusing language, um, you know, making... Um, one of the things about technical papers, even when technical review works, it has certain blind spots, right? Like if you, you, you submit a, a NeurIPS paper, you submit an ICML paper, you have an expectation there are certain things. Other uh, reviewers are going to, um, if the system works, be be very critical about and they are going to spot. And among them, you know, you expect that they're going to spot if you're um your your notation makes no sense. They're gonna spot if your theorem is wrong. Hopefully, um, they're gonna spot if your experiments don't uh, sort of support the kind of performance claim that you are making in a in a like absolute sense, right? But what what they tend to miss, and I think it's just a blind spot in the review, is the reviews are not generally critical about the the sort of um, you know, they're not able to assess the critical arguments that are made. And this is an area where, you know, the typical ML paper is a bit sloppy. So a typical ML paper will, you know, there's a caricature that you can make, which is that your introduction is just kind of, you know, something is a problem and other people have worked on it or it's... Um, you know, you used to say some kind of generic mumbo jumbo, there's more and more data and bigger and bigger computers and something, something, something. And then you say something is a problem. And right now people have to do the work and um, we can automate it with machine learning or something. But it's basically um, in too many papers, the introduction is not like an opportunity to, for for like some profound philosophical argument that, that justifies the why you're solving the problem you are in the first place. It's sort of a, a throwaway piece that um, just to some kind of stage setting, so you could move on to the meat of the paper, which is here are the equations and here are the quantitative results. And that leaves, you know, and is that, that the right bar a of, for a paper? A profound philosophical argument? Is that the case you know, in other fields? Not, not for every paper, but um, you know, uh, well, in other fields, it is the contribution, right? In other, in other fields, like the the argument is the substance of the paper. I think a philosophy paper. Um, depending on which area of, you know, say economics or something that, that, that could be the essence of the paper can be the critical argument that you are making, which is very different where, where we sort of get to that. I have a very well formed machine learning problem and either I have an algorithm for it or I have a, a smashing empirical result for it. That is the mm-hmm. that and, and, and the sweet spot, I think, for like a, a NeurIPS or ICML paper, like the sweet spot from a perspective of like most likely to get in Is something like that. I've got a very well formed problem. Everyone's already decided it's important. I don't have to argue for its validity. And then you have the real sweet spot would be you had just enough of a algorithmic contribution that there's a non-trivial theorem in there. And then you also had some amount of experiments, you know, because there's one of these things like whoever it's whoever doesn't like your paper the most, it probably is going to get it, you know, uh, you know, like there's some argument, I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is truly true, but you know, there's maybe an asp- a nugget of truth in it that like a paper doesn't get accepted, it gets not rejected or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so this way it's, you know, the person who would say, ah, you know, the, the, you know there's no real experiments, I don't know it really works, that that person is satisfied and the person who, um, their lazy way of accepting the paper is, ah, it's trivial. They, they get the, they get the math that they're looking for, then everyone is happy. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, I think, I think the language is a bit of a blind spot. Like, for example, it's extremely difficult um, to publish uh, a position paper, no matter how well argued it. I, I think if you, if you submitted a, a, an eight-page essay that, like, really meticulously picks apart, say, the foundations of, of some kind of problem or some kind of application of machine learning in a way that is extremely knowledgeable or well-researched or whatever, I think you'd have virtually no chance of getting it accepted at ICML or NeurIPS. I think the NLP community is a bit better. Like some of their conferences will explicitly, if not, you know, say that's the number one priority, and I don't think they should. It's a technical conference. Well, at least include position papers as like within the mandate of the conference. Um, Where you do have a little bit more license for something like that is a lot of workshops are friendlier to that kind of material. But, you know, I think the danger is what you end up getting is what you get is a technical paper that maybe... Maybe it makes technical sense. I mean, even even there, I think we have some weird issues, but that's a whole other topic. Um, But, you know, even say the technical content of the paper makes sense. What you have is a problem which is ostensibly valuable in part because of the virtue signaling that it is addressing some important real world problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So 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 you start from that point. But then um, the claim Maybe, you know, the paper says, like, uh, we make uh, our algorithm fair by doing whatever, you know, this is the fair, the fair DQN, the fair GAN, the fair uh, whatever it is. So the the claim, like from the title, from the very title of the paper is the claim is somehow we have satisfied whatever it is, this thing, this thing called fairness, fairness check. You know, we've made the ethical, the ethical reinforcement learning agent or something like this. Mm-hmm. So like the claim is sort of at the, at the outset is not it's not like a firm technical mathematical claim. It's sort of like we solved ethics or something like this. And then the introduction very often, you know, for for and I'm not saying every paper is like this. but I think there's a pattern where the, the motivation might might either be, you know, on the worst side, it could be, you know, there's plenty of work that's just like babbling. But on the other side, you could have work that is even intelligent, but it's just that the the applicability to to that real world problem that you're claiming that you uh, solved is just missing or it's not there or you know it's there there are serious caveats that need to be stated um and then you know you have this these weird things that you like you have to argue that your your quantitative result is correct you have to argue you have to be meticulous about laying out like how you did your splits between train validation test data um how many runs did you do um, you know, make sure that your uh, work is is reproducible by by communicating certain technical details. You have to put the proofs for the theorems. You can't just make a outlandish claim that some mathematical fact is true. You have to you have to prove it. Right. But then there's things that you don't have to prove. And I think these are subtle ways that, that things go wrong. Like, for example, you don't have to argue for what you call something. And some reviewers might get pricked or they might be particular about language. But I think a lot of people are willing to let that slide. Um, and, and this becomes, I think, especially a problem in this new dynamic where um, the research isn't just among the research community, right? It's not just technical research that's being read by PhD students. There's this weird loop between research, um, industry, uh, governance, and uh, a huge part of that is the popular press. Mm-hmm. And so you wind up in a system where it's like people uh, are maybe motivated. I think I think, you know, people I don't think are malicious I think you wind up with someone maybe motivated by a genuine desire to uh, do something that they feel has more um, social, you know, sort of some kind of positive social impact or something like that. But then they start working on it and they think, well, um, you know. How am I getting, you know, what would be a good title for this paper? It's going to get people to read it or something, you know, and, and, and they're not necessarily thinking like, hey, I'm making a claim that this is a thing that solves this. There's this real world problem. And I'm making a claim that this uh, algorithm that I'm putting, which solves some very uh, sort of like toy, very reductive version of that problem um, that, uh, you know, that has some applicability to that, that that real world situation, which it might not. Right. And and then, you know, people you know, like you know, you put out this thing, like, um, I, you know, I'm gonna, you know, m- my thing will tell you if your algorithm is fair or whatever, without even being clear about have we even addressed like the right ingredients, or we even speaking in the right language to be able to capture something like that, and do we even access the right data or any any of that, and then it gets picked up in a story and say, you know, oh, uh, you know, like, for example, like IBM has been a bit of a a bit of a uh, like cavalier actor in this way, right? Both with this, both with medical and with fairness related things, right? So, so IBM um, did this thing where you know with Watson forever, where they kind of made people think they were solving fundamental medical problems when they really didn't have, they didn't have the goods to back it up. And then now it's like, oh, we're getting ahead of the fairness thing, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's great that you know, on one hand you know they're running this ad campaign, they're raising awareness, that's one thing. But on the other hand, they put out. Uh, like an open source repo, and they made it sound like, hey, you know, here, here's a set of algorithms that'll make your stuff fair. Um, and, and the big danger, right, is that someone would use that and think that like, okay, that'll that that that'll clear us. And, and, and where it gets even crazier, and, and this maybe ties into a paper that I wrote uh, recently with Alex Choldachova at the Heinz School of Public Policy and Julian McCauley from UCSD, is that, you know, sometimes the algorithm actually could be Super horrible from from any, I think, like reasonable ethical standpoint, because people have miscast the problem. Right. Those simplifying decisions that you made that sort of seemed intuitive from setting up a toy problem when you weren't thinking about any real world data might actually result in something that's absolutely horrible um, that you would never want to use. Right. What are some
0: examples of that.
1: So here's a problem in the in the United States. Our sort of perspective on like discrimination in a, in a lot of contexts is, is informed by um, title seven of the civil rights act of 1964. Now, now that gives, I think our dominance in the research community means that maybe like the overall like fairness work is a little bit skewed by technical interpretations of United States law versus other countries, which maybe have their own legal precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, you know, that's, that's where I think a lot of like thinking, um, comes from. And, and, and in that context, you know, there, there's these basically, the Civil Rights Act has these two um, legal doctrines that have emerged from it. And one is this notion of disparate treatment, and the other is this notion of disparate impact. And, you know, um, these are motivated by discrimination in, in housing and in employment and a number of cases. And, you know, disparate treatment is basically about intentional discrimination. So it includes, it subsumes discrimination Based on uh, like explicit consideration of something that is deemed uh, what they call a protected um, characteristic or like membership in a protected class. Right. So this could be like um, the what is someone's race? What is someone's gender? And in fact, in the original civil rights of, of 1964, there is like some, denomin- some 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 listing of a set of protected classes. Probably in 2019, there are some that we would want to include in things that we would think of as kind of like salient Uh, Like wedges of discrimination in society that we would want to Mm -hmm. be especially protective of that were not included then, like uh, sexual orientation or something. But um, I guess like 1964 America wasn't there yet, so it's not part of the Civil Rights Act. So disparate treatment is about intentional discrimination, and um, that includes, but is not limited to, like direct use of that characteristic. So you know it's important to keep in in mind how the law works versus how math works. With math, we want to say I want to come up with a uh, a crystal clear, simple set of principles that's going to govern any kind of situation that I could possibly encounter, right? It's just, it describes the world or, you know, physics or something like that would, would kind of operate in this sort of way. The law is more like a patchwork that is, is, is plugging in laws in different places to try to deal with different things that are actually happening in the world, right? So th- there, there there's a set of drugs that are illegal, there's a set of drugs that are not illegal, but you know, maybe are qualitatively similar. The reason why they're not illegal is because uh, they, haven't, they haven't been abused yet. You know, once they are, then maybe they would become illegal, right? We would make a law. we say, oh, there's a problem. Let's make a law. Right. And it puts us in a weird situation for governing technology because technology might bring up new problems, but our law is about dealing with uh, certain when we think of discrimination, when we were creating the law. So who are you thinking of? You're thinking of the racist person who has a sign analysis, says we don't hire whoever. That's one case. Right. So let's so disparate treatment, I think. And I, and and I want to be clear that I'm not a um, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm just a, uh, a fake legal scholar or something. Um, I'm a machine learning person who tries to be uh, play one on TV, bi- tries to be bilingual, um, maybe more than is standard. But um, I don't I, you know, I'm not like uh you know, I'm sure that there's a number of people from from the other side that know this better. But fortunately, by, by having dialogue with them, you know, we, we've had a more refined we've been able to refine our, you know, um, analysis on it. All right, so that's that's one thing, disparate treatment. And the other side is disparate impact. And disparate impact basically is, is trying to cover those situations whereby you can have what the law calls a facially neutral policy. So Facially neutral means like, you know, like on this, it appears not to in any way like explicitly be. Um, taking it, you know, using this kind of information. And yet at the same time, it can have an unjustified um, disparate impact, you know, an unjustified disparity. And so it's really important to think about, like, what's going on here and that on one hand, we have disparate treatment. Disparate treatment is a doctrine that is concerned with intent, right? And then on the other side, we have disparate uh, impact, uh, a different legal doctrine, which is concerned with um, whether or not something is justified, And then we're trying to uh, people basically look to the law because they say, hey, well, I want to make algorithms that, you know, don't do bad things. So so let me look to the law because that's like my existing body of work that I could draw from. But the law talks about intention. The law talks about justification. And, um, you know, I don't know what justification is in in the language of supervised learning, but I'm pretty sure that basically it's not expressible in the light, Like, like basically, we've got an insufficient language. The the, mm. the way that we're talking about machine learning problems is too reductive, and it doesn't doesn't possess the vocabulary to express those concepts. Kind of like I don't know if you've seen Judah Pearl. If you read the book of Why, it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. The way he's he's you know he's you know he's he's ringing that bell, talking about um you know the, all the long line of statisticians that didn't realize that causality was something that lied outside classical statistics. And like no matter how hard you try, there's not like just an expression. In purely probability terms, that you know tells you what causality is. You have to introduce like external notation. Um, I think it's a little bit like that. You know, we have the law is is coming from from this richer family of, of notions, and and we don't know what it means to justify something because all we know how to do is basically say is something associated with something else. We don't know why it's associated. We don't know how to differentiate. For example, um, you know uh, why? What is the difference between um, So, uh, the difference between, if you were to look at like educational outcomes, right. And say, what, what should, what should institutes of higher learning do, you know, in their, in their admissions processes vis-a-vis, um, black versus white Americans versus white, you know, versus Jewish Americans. And those are two very different, uh, cases to think about. And part of why they're different to think about is because, um, you know, there's this whole, um, background of, of, of how that data was created. It's not just is a group overrepresented versus another group, but there's also, you know, what was the process, you know, in one case, I think we have a, a very deep and well documented knowledge of uh, systematic, you know, like institutional um, oppression of, of one group that, you know, created opportunities and um, withheld opportunities from the other. And and in the other case, you sort of have a group that's maybe overrepresented despite being um, discriminated against and and, and, you know, these kind of point to different, uh, I think, to most people's like ethical sensibilities, different senses about, you know, how you should correct them. But supervised learning doesn't give you those tools. Right. Supervised learning doesn't distinguish these them between these because it doesn't the, the tools that we have in supervised learning for trying to address fairness. Don't don't look into where the data comes from. So back back to the, the, those two cases, what people have done is they've tried to formalize you know, disparate treatment and disparate impact as technical ideas that you can express just as simple statistical parodies. And the reason why is because they wanna build an algorithm, right? You want to you wanna say, hey, here's a problem. I can I can define it in technical terms, I can fix it in technical terms. So the way people interpret disparate treatment in technical terms is they say, um, Uh, disparate treatment says explicit use of the protected class or intentional use of the, you know, intentional, uh, kind of discrimination on that basis, even if, you know, it's not, you know, used directly. Well, we, well, let's throw out the intentional part because we don't really know how to model intent. We don't know what that means. It's not even clear if it means anything in the context of a supervised learning model, you know, whose intent are we talking about the human, the model. So you throw that part out. And so then disparate treatment just becomes blindness. So it means we just don't use that feature. Right. Then disparate impact, on the other hand, we don't know um, how to deal with the justification part because justification has, we have to start thinking about where the data comes from. We have to start thinking about what does it, you know, you know, that's too, it's too philosophical. So let's throw out the justification part. Let's just look at demographic parity. Right. Then, um, among other things, you know, you say, well, um, let's say that I wanted to uh, minimize the demographic disparity between two groups while as much as possible, maintaining the accuracy of the model, right? How would I do that? And it, the answer is actually simple. It's, I would go in there and explicitly um, set the thresholds of the groups differently so that I would accept more people from one group and slightly less from the other than if I had just like run a supervised model and set a universal threshold. And um, by doing that, you would actually like optimally trade off, you know, the demographic parity versus the accuracy. And then what people end up saying is, well, but we can't do that because we want to we don't want to have disparate treatment and the question is is it disparate treatment if it's in the service of diversity Mm -hmm. um and that actually becomes this. actually you know it's, it's so so the big problem like where we you know we actually ran into our own problem and got to work through this issue is that fortunately we the set of authors we had friends who were in the legal community who work on these issues and are really passionate about them and are annoyed when they're talked about the wrong way from the technical community so they came back to us and said well you know you can't you can't have legal disparate treatment. I'm like, what do you mean? You're like, well, it's by definition, if it's legal, it's not disparate treatment. Right. So there was this, there was this kind of tension of, mm, so disparate mm. treatment then doesn't actually mean blindness. Disparate treatment means it's, it's unjustified. Right. It's like disparate, It's not like have, having disparate treatment isn't just not being blind. It's like, Having disparate treatment means not being blind in a scenario that's like illegal, unless it's somehow right. overwritten and considered to be legal. So what we've done, I think that the big danger is we've we've overloaded these like reductive technical terms with the uh, name of a legal doctrine. So we've purported, you know, at the end of the day, we say we've solved, you know, we've 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 solved disparate treatment, we've solved disparate impact. But what we've solved is like these sort of toy statistical parodies. We we've characterized these trade-offs. It's useful work. But the big danger, I think, is that we end up sort of misrepresenting to the public like we've solved like a legal conundrum and we have't, right? So what we ended up looking at is so the, what then people do right is they they, they have to say, well you can't have this treatment because the losses, you can't even though actually you can potentially uh, you know and this is I think people there's all kinds of other arguments like people are wary of doing anything that looks like affirmative action or calling it affirmative action, whether or not they believe in affirmative action because, there's a worry that, you know, even though affirmative action is legal, that um, small changes in the uh, composition of the Supreme Court or something could or, you know, could, it could be in a precarious state. So you want to come mm-hmm. up with a solution that doesn't rely on. That's a that's a separate issue, for, I think, from more from like a strategic mm-hmm. angle in terms of pitching policy than from a technical angle. But what we end up doing in this paper is basically look at this problem. Of like, one, first, how do how do these how do these technical notions relate to these? Um, legal ones but then even further when you try to trade off uh, having you know this representational parity this demographic parity or, or what we call you know what they call satisfying you know disparate impact or not having disparate impact um, but you know is actually this like demographic parity in a statistical sense with accuracy and you try to do it without explicitly looking at the group membership you come up with these algorithms that have very very strange behavior and so we start analyzing you know what, what's the behavior of these algorithms And two uh, two really weird things happen. One is that basically, well, you have all these features that are sort of predictive of whatever is the protected attribute, right? So correlated to essentially. Yeah, right. Which is sort of why you have a problem in the first place, right? Why why disparate impact is a problem in the first place is that, well, it's not enough to just not look at that feature because it's associated with with a label. It's associated with the other covariates. Like everything's all entangled. If it's perfectly entangled, like in the way that like you could just with 100% accuracy recover that feature, Right then it turns out well because the optimal thing is to just ex- set a class dependent threshold like and just move the threshold to sort of in a diversity promoting way um, that's what your model's going to do anyway right if your model's expressive enough it's explicitly what it's going to do so you know you've done all you've jumped through all these hoops to pretend that you're doing something else but it, w- when the feature is fully recoverable you're going to end up doing that exactly anyway so you're only kind of pretending to do something qualitatively different in which case why bother um, but then the the more troubling case is what happens when, you know, everything's correlated, but not perfectly. Like, you can only imperfectly infer someone's gender, say, from their non-protected traits. Mm-hmm. And then the weird thing that happens is that if you take a lot of these algorithms off the shelf and you apply them on data, so we looked at CS admissions data and we said, what if we wanted to increase the number of uh, women admitted relative to men? Um while without looking at the gender. Right. So that's that's the thing. That's the, this kind of problem set up that was adopted by a lot of problems. It says we want to not have disparate impact, but also not have disparate treatment. You know, keep in mind, I'm like using uh, scare quotes because that's not you know, they're not really talking about the legal doctrine, but about the. So we 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 tried to not use those terms. So we called it impact disparity and treatment disparity to be like just, you know, and explicitly say in the introduction, like, you know, th- we use this to just be clear. We're not talking about the, the legal doctrine. So if you say I don't want to have either of those and subject to that I want to maximize accuracy what happens and what ends up happening is the model implicitly is trying to infer what is the what is the gender say so in our case it was gender was a sensitive trait and then it's trying to use the inferred implicit gender to, to flip decisions. So mm-hmm. basically, you know, you look at what was the threshold that you would have had anyway, and you have some people that are a little bit above the threshold, some people that are a little bit below the threshold, um, both among, you know, the men and above the women. And what basically what the model doing is it doesn't know which are the men or the women. It knows which ones it thinks are more likely to be men or more likely to be women. So end up being if you look at as compared to the unconstrained model whose decisions get flipped. And it's well, one, because there there's an inordinate amount of men in the CS admissions data. Um It's it's largely just men having their decisions flipped from men who the model thinks are women having their models flipped to positive and men who the model thinks are men having their very confidently having their decisions flipped to negative. And then there's also some flips of women who and and, and women who the model thinks are men might get hurt by the algorithm Mm. and women who the model thinks are most likely to be women, but are a little bit below the threshold are are benefited by it. Um, And then you think, well, You know, what, you know, if you step back, if you think in terms of supervised learning and you just think, hey, what I care about is that there's some group level justice, then, you know, in in that through that lens, you think you might still say, this is, you know, this is worth it. This is okay. Right. Even though it sounds asinine. Yeah. Even though it sounds a little bit weird, especially when it's like, well, we could have just gone in there and just set the thresholds a little bit differently and just like our goal was we wanted to increase the representation of some group. Like, why aren't we just doing that? But, the weirder thing, though, I think that then this is the part where I think it kind of brings things full circle to like thinking a little bit more like, say, an economist or like a social scientist is you think not just about a, a prediction, but a system of incentives, right? Not just I'm making classifications, but I'm making decisions. And this is telling people what they should do to get into grad school, Right. And it's like, so if you start breaking it down, you look into it and you say, who are the people that the model thinks are most likely to be women? Like say among the women, like what, what, what are the the features that make the model think they're most likely to be women versus men? And it turns out that there's discrepancies based on who your requested advisor is, which area you say you want to work in, uh, things like this. Right. And so like, to me, that's like the scariest part about it. It's not just that it's like a little bit like if it was just you well, it's just
0: all these layers of unintended consequences and potentials for gaming and all, just right. all kinds of stuff.
1: And even more than that. Right. Because it's not just an, like unintended consequences. It's like, well, who are the women? Like, how do you how do you benefit from the, this policy as a woman? You have to be in the field in which women are already well represented so that it's. Um, in the subfield so that it, the, the algorithm knows that you're a woman. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the women who are actually hurt by it are the ones who are like in the field that is underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Those are the mm-hmm. ones who are hurt because the model thinks they're men. Right. So um, or thinks they're more likely to be men and therefore thinks it's more likely to get more credit towards. It's like, you know, equality constraint by rejecting them. And so the danger here. Um, and so like I don't mean like I want to be very clear that one, I think we need to do something to address these social issues. And um, I think it's like a pressing concern of our time. Um, and I'm all for it. I also think we need technical people working on it and um, thinking about these problems and, and even investigating the potential of technical solutions. But I think, you know, the, the danger is we need to, one, we need to be very clear about what is the problem we're solving and is this, is this a solution anyone should even think about using off the shelf? Right. Because like these policymakers are saying we need an interpretability or explainability or or, you know, uh, some kind of fairness, whatever. And, and when technologists are showing up because there's a, a bit of a career cookie to say, hey, I'm working on that and I'm I've made progress. What about my research? The big danger is, w- well, what if, what if what you're doing actually is really bad, like it would be really, really bad for anyone to deploy that um, compared to even doing something kind of naive. Right. And, and we have to be, I think, just really careful that we don't like sort of create this uh, sense that like we've we've solved this societal problem in a way where like, oh, you know, you could outsource the judgment to us. We don't need we don't need the the kind of think about it in a much way. It's like we've actually turned this into a technical problem and solved it. So so, you know, like, you know, outsource outsource the 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 like, really, really um, pertinent like debate that needs to happen to society to uh, the technocrats or something. Um so so I, right, I, you know, I think it's absolutely important work in an important area, but the danger that I think we'd kind of highlight there is there's there's a a huge risk of a certain kind of um, folly of solutionism
0: uh, well, Zach, it was great uh, getting a chance to finally catch up with you and definitely lots of important issues here and things to figure out but not via solutionism.
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> We got to stay humble. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.